I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7, I think we're in. Well, I hope it is, because that's the one I've prepared. Yeah. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Last week, we saw how the God had engineered the circumstances to get the ark back to Israel from the Philistines. How the Philistines had been literally cursed because of their act of irreverence against the Lord. <clears throat> and we looked at, you know, the way that God moves things and even talks to cows and tells them where to go and makes sure that they go in the right direction. And even although they may not want to go in that particular direction, they're, they're subject to the will of the Lord. And I often think when I look out and I see nature and in all its glory, creation in all its glory, that the only thing that appears to be disobedient to God in, in this world is us. The trees bring their fruit in season and the, the leaves fall at this time of the year and they know when to go to sleep and when to wake up. They know when to, when to be green and when to be dry. And you know, as I've said before, all these little birds that sit in the fence, you know, we don't see them with psychosis or anything wondering where their next meal's going to come from or who's going to pay their gas bill. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. And yet here we are, who are the pinnacle of God's creation. God said, let us make them in our image. And here we are, the very pinnacle of God's creation. And we're the most disobedient part of God's creation. It seems a strange irony. But, you know, I'm encouraged by this, that even the cows would obey God. That God can speak to anyone's heart, no matter what their intellectual is, or intellect, sorry, is. God can speak to them. And so I suppose at the start of chapter 7 here, <clears throat> we see that the ark had returned to Beth Shemesh. And the people in Beth Shemesh, the men had been disrespectful to the ark. They had looked inside it and 70 men had died for their, for their disobedience. Because they should have known better. They should have had a proper reverence for God. And so they had said to a nearby town, probably five or six miles away, Kiriath Jerim, they'd asked the men from there to come down and take it up there. And so we find that <coughs> at the start of chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill, and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kiriath Jerim a long time, 20 years and all. Excuse me. Get two frogs in my throat this morning. So these men from Kiriath Jerim they treated the ark with respect. They sacrificed to the Lord. They had twenty years they had the ark in the same place. And I suppose it should tell us at this time that the tabernacle was probably out of commission at this time. The Philistines during this 20 years had laid waste to Israel. Whether the ark had been, the, the, sorry, the tabernacle had been taken to pieces and, and hidden somewhere or taken to a safe piece of ground where it had been erected, but there was obviously a situation arose where the ark of the covenant, which should have resided in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, it was not proper to do it at that point in time. And so the ark stayed here at Kiriath Jerim. 
And they made Eleazar a priest. Abinadab was his father. We can't find any indication that Adinabab or Eleazar were of the priestly line. So, by appointing Eleazar as a priest, it was obviously outside God's will in the matter. That was not what he had decreed. But all that they did, you know, be sacrificing to the Lord where it wasn't in the proper place of the tabernacle, for keeping the ark in a place that wasn't appointed by God, be appointing a, a young man who was dubious as to whether he was supposed to be in the priestly line or not, irrespective of the things they did right or they did wrong, God honoured them in it. Because their hearts were right in the matter. And you know, irrespective of whether we look at the outside things of men, God looks at the heart. Nobody can know the heart of man except God. And of course that unregenerate heart, the Bible speaks about, the heart of man is black and wicked and who can know it? But praise God for Jesus that our heart now is on the mend. That we are no longer black and wicked. And who would know us? But God would know us. So this was a desire to do the right thing. And that's something I suppose in our lives we should always be striving to do. We should always be striving to do the right thing. Whether it's convenient to us or not. Whether it does us any harm or not. We should always be trying to do the right thing. And, and like the men of Kiriath Jerem here. They trusted God to honour them in it and to bless them in it. I often think about it from this point of view. You know, if I was walking down the street and I saw a pound lying on the pavement and I picked it up, I thought, oh, that's good, I found a pound. Great. It would never cross my mind to go to the police station and say, by the way, I found a pound. And you laugh because it would never cross any of minds and the policeman would give you a breathalyzer and say, you feeling all right? But suppose you found a bag with a million pounds in it. What would you do with it then? <laughs> Wouldn't you get in your pocket? No. <clears throat> but what would you do with it then? Would you take 50,000 out and hand it into the police station and say, I found 50,000 pounds? Would you? These are the kind of thoughts that run through my head. Eh? Would you give it all into the police? Would you just take it home? Because in some measure, when you look at a million pounds lying about in the street, there's obviously something fairly illegal about that money. Nobody leaves a million pounds in cash lying about the street. And yet, there have been instances when people have found huge amounts of money. And that's something that, you know, do you do the right thing? Where is your heart in the matter? If we didn't hand it in to the police or didn't take some notion to, to find out who owned it, would God really bless us in this situation? I'll leave that with you. It's something we have to be careful of. Because I've often said to people, and it goes for the same thing when we're talking about our faith. You know, you might be able to stand the two or three days of torture and getting your nails pulled out and all the rest of it because you're a Christian, as many are getting done today. And they're not denying the Lord. And we hope that the Spirit would strengthen us to that point. And you think, well, I could never do that. Yes, you could. Because in these circumstances, God would give you the strength to stand where you think you might fail. But, all of these things, people torture you and poke your eyes out and all the rest of it. And you don't give up your faith. But what if somebody offered you a million pounds? All I want you to say is, you deny Jesus Christ. And the million pounds is yours.
Just the same as Satan said to Jesus. All the kingdoms of the world. Look, I'm the guy. I'm Satan. I'm the guy that's in charge of all the kingdoms of the world. You might be an overlord, yes, but right at this point in time, these are all mine. If you just bow down and worship me, you just deny yourself. And you can have it all. You don't need to go to the cross, Jesus. I'll give you it all. But you need to bow down and worship me. And so we have to be careful. Jesus did the right thing, thankfully. And we need to be careful that in all the circumstances we find ourselves in, whether they benefit us or they take from us, we need to be sure that we do the right thing and that God will honour us in it. And although this, the ark was back in Israel, the people in Israel were still not right with God. They still worshipped God. Yes, they did. They still worshipped Yahweh, Jehovah God. They still worshipped him. They did. But they had added in idol worship. The idols of the Amorites and the Philistines. And they thought there was really nothing wrong with that. They thought, well, as long as we're worshipping God, you know, we can add a bit here and add a bit there. And, you know, that seems to be in some measure what's happening in certain areas of the church today. That we just add bits in. We just take to the world and say, well, that's a good idea. Let's have some Christian psychiatry. Let's do that. Or let's have some Christian yoga and meditate and all the wrong things. And then at the end of the day, in some measure, we expect God to still honour it. So these people had put themselves in that position and they thought in some measure, yes, they worship God, yes, but they were out of step with what God wanted for them. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord or they lamented after the Lord, some translations say. They were under pressure from the Philistines and they had every reason to lament. They were militarily defeated. We saw that even in the previous to this 20 years they had lost two major battles to the Philistines and who knows what other battles they'd lost that weren't recorded here. The unfortunate thing is, and, and, and I suppose it's the fortunate thing about the Bible, but the victors write the history. The Philistines would have a great uh, spiel about this, these victories against the Israelites. But here we have, you know, God in his wisdom that the defeated have written the history because God wanted to show his power and show his glory. So they were under this military subjection at this point in time and as well, their economy was destroyed. The Philistines to the west of them on the Gaza Strip, the Amorites and the Ammonites to the east of them all controlled the major trading routes. The major trading routes come up from Egypt and would have passed through Gaza. The major trading routes from the east would have come in through modern-day Jordan and, and uh, Syria. And these were all blocked off by their enemies. So economically, they were ruined. Militarily, they had been ruined. They were just about holding their own. They lamented before the Lord because they realised that the position they were in was because of their own backsliding if you want to call it that they wanted to come back to the Lord but they were so far away that they didn't know how to do it and so they'd come to Samuel 
You know, and that often reminds me with people who have backslidden quite seriously. They feel as if they've gone too far and that God doesn't want them back or they don't know how to come back. They're too ashamed, they're too embarrassed to walk back through the door of a fellowship meeting. And as we see people coming back, <coughs> excuse me, as we pray for them, then we have to be very aware that they're in a very sensitive situation. That something that we might say that could be jovial could end up being heart-wrenching for them. When we see people coming back through the door, the last thing <coughs> that I would like you to say is, well, where have you been? I want people to say, it's nice to see you. How are you doing? The past is of no problem. We look forward. Whenever they want to share what's happened in their backsliding state, then that's up to them. and That's up to God to direct them through the power of the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is to bring them into that fellowship. And I suppose we could say, we don't know the heart of men. <clears throat> but we'll see that, how the heart controls the actions a bit later on in this chapter. They didn't know how to come back to God. They couldn't tell the wheat from the chaff. They couldn't tell what was good for them and what was bad for them. And so they were stuck in that terrible place. God doesn't want me. And in all these 20 years, where was Samuel? In all this situation from way back when the ark was uh, <coughs> excuse me, taking into battle, we've had no mention of Samuel. I often sort of put it together and I suppose it's kind of speculative but I like to think that when the army had sent to Shiloh to bring the ark into the camp so that, the, that God might be there, God in a box and might help them to defeat the Philistines that Samuel had said to them a pointless exercise boys you know you're, you need to repent you need to come back to God you need to get yourselves right just because you've got this box that represents God here on earth, it doesn't mean to say that God's with you. And so Samuel, making his point, would step back and just let them do it. And of course we saw the consequences. But where was he these last 20 years? Where was he from the ark, the ark being returned to Israel up till now? Well, I would like to think that he was going around speaking to the backsliders in Israel. Many people don't want to come back to the Lord because it becomes too much a challenge. There's too much to be changed in people's lives. What they forget is that you don't have to do it on your own. That God's in the business of restoring lives. God's in the business of making people better. Healing broken hearts. You know, you can picture Samuel doing his duties as, a, as the judge of Israel going around and speaking to people and people would say, oh Samuel, what a state this country's in. And how many times have we heard that today from our own country? Oh Lord, what a state this country's in. What a state this world's in. And Samuel's there to tell him, you know, you need to, you need to pray to the Lord that will heal your backsliding. Jeremiah spoke about it. It's one of the only places in the Bible that the word backsliding is mentioned. It was in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah pleaded with the Lord 
before the Babylonians came to capture Judea and, and Jerusalem and take them into captivity during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, Jeremiah said, O oh Lord, heal their backsliding. Heal their backsliding. The people of Israel, at this point in time, God was beginning to stir their hearts, and I'm sure that the words of Samuel were beginning to stir their hearts as well. <coughs> but maybe they saw it as too much of a challenge. But at verse 3, <coughs> oh, excuse me, Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. The Baals and Ashtoreths, these were the, the fertility gods. We've spoken about the Baal already. There were many Baals. This particular one that the Philistines worshipped was either supposed to be the father of Dagon or was the son of Dagon. There's a difference in that, but it was related to Dagon, the, the god who had fallen down uh, before the Ark of the Lord. So these were, these were two gods, Ashtoreth, who was a, go, a goddess of fertility, and uh, Baal, who was also create, a, a, a fertility-creating god as well. So this was a good start for the Israelites. They turned back to Samuel for some advice. Why did they come to Samuel? Because they knew he was a godly man. They had observed his life, seen it, and said, this is the man we need to speak to. And that's where we should be, guys. When people in the world have troubles, they should be coming to our doors. Because in us, they should see Christ. They should see that Holy Spirit living within us. That we can turn and give advice, godly advice. People should turn to us for godly advice. But this repentance, this turning back to God, it must start inwardly. And what happens in our hearts will be reflected in our actions. As it was here. Samuel said to them, you need to turn back to the Lord and give up your foreign gods. When the heart turns back to the Lord, the outward sign is that they give up the foreign gods. Nobody knows a man's heart except God. All we can judge on is what the Bible talks about fruit. The fruit that we bear. The things that were acceptable to us a year ago or two years ago should no longer be acceptable to us. We should be going forward. We should be on a, an upward track. We should be on that holiness track. And I'm not talking about being holy willies or anything. I'm just talking about serving the Lord in the place that you're in. The things that trouble you the now should, in a year's time, not be an issue for you. Just the same forgiveness in the heart must be reflected outwardly. We know that we've forgiven somebody when we can have a sensible and reasonable conversation with them again. And that we're not flying off the handle or we're not getting that terrible ball that gets in you in there and you think, And I know it's not easy, but these are the things we need to walk in a godly way. And we need to be changed. This was the challenge that Samuel was putting to Israel. And Israel 
in some measure were, 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 were balking at it and they were saying, oh, I don't know if we can do this, Samuel. But you can do it with God's help. Put away the foreign gods. That was the sign. There's a strange paradox here for the Christian. Because the Bible tells us that in repentance, you know, if, our, if we confess our sins, then our God is capable to cleanse us from all unholiness and all unrighteousness. I pa- paraphrase that a bit. But our sins are not forgiven because we confess them. Who could confess all their sin? Who would know all their sin? We might indeed be standing in a sinful situation that we know nothing about. Our sins are forgiven. And listen to this because this is important. Your sins are forgiven because Jesus died on the cross. Not because of confession. Not because you've sat up all night and made a list. As many people have come to me in the past and said, I need to write down all my sins so that God will forgive them. I said, no, you don't need to write them all down. God will forgive you your sin. And here we are in this situation. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, our sins are forgiven. And the Bible quite clearly teaches that it's all our sins, past, present and future. So why do we constantly have to confess our sin? And we should. So what do we gain from the confession? We don't gain salvation. Because salvation is assured for us. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. So if we don't lose salvation, what do we lose? Well, you lose fellowship. Just the same as you have with a brother or sister in Christ whom you've maybe not got the best relationship with or there's been a fallout or there's been a problem. Where there used to be sweet coin and ear fellowship, there's a bit of coldness there now. And that can happen with God as well. Not because God becomes cold to you, but because you become cold to God. That your situation is such that there's unconfessed sin in your life. That doesn't lead to a loss of salvation. God doesn't love you any less. But that sweet fellowship that maybe you enjoyed, closer fellowship with the Lord, that unique relationship you had with God, maybe it's just kind of cooled a bit. And that's, that's where Israel was. It wasn't that God didn't love them anymore. But they had walked away so far that the relationship between them and God was stone cold. There was nothing in it. But all it required was repentance. All it required was that genuine, on your knees, God, I've got it wrong. I don't know where I've got it wrong. Over the years I've just slipped away, Lord. I don't know where I've got it wrong, but Lord, you can make it right. And that is the power of repentance. We cannot have full fellowship with God if, like Israel, we're in the wrong place. And we might not even realise we're in the wrong place. It might take a Samuel in your life to say, wait a minute, you know, you're doing this and you're doing that. You know, that's, that's not right. Let me show you in the scriptures where it says that's no right. And then whatever you do with it is up to yourself. Oops. Wrong page. So these Baals and Ashtoreths that the 
Israel were worshipping, they really didn't think there was anything wrong with them. But Samuel said to them, get rid of them. Because they're idols in your life. And archaeologically, when we look at the digs that have been going on in the Middle East, I mean, literally you dig a hole in the ground and you find an artifact. I mean, it just is. It's, you know, one of the Psalms says that the truth will rise up out of the ground. And it truly is. The truth of Israel's past and the Jews' claim to the land has literally been rising up out of the ground. But these, the, archaeologically, there have been many of these bronze plaques that have shown the asterisks or, or at least naked men and women on, on these brass plaques and this was what the archaeologists reckon was the, the sort of bowels and the asterisks. And they've been regularly uncovered. And notice what Samuel says to the people here. He says to them, don't just take the good bits. You know, let's just take the good bits of Ashtoreth and the good bits of Baal and we'll kind of mishmash them together and we'll make a, a faith in God. He tells them to be rid of them. And we see it today with this, and I keep going on about it, but this mixture today, Eastern mysticism coming into the church through all sorts of things. And meditation, which is the wrong type of meditation. We, we should really... We should coin another word for meditation, Christian-wise. Or we should call it Christian meditation because it's got nothing to do with this Eastern mysticism. You're sitting and holding your hands and going, Ooh. All that this that's coming into the church teaches you is how to empty your mind. I don't want my mind emptied. I want my mind filled with the good things of God. And that's what I want to meditate on. And that's what we should be meditating on. You know, there used to be a saying that went about, you know, well, you just eat the chicken and spit out the bones. Well, make sure the bones don't catch in your throat. Because it's a dangerous place to be, putting chicken bones in your mouth. I used this analogy some years ago. Some of you might remember it and some not. But Have you ever went into the cupboard and you want to make a slice of toast and there's one slice of bread in the loaf? And it's mouldy. And you think, well, it's not too bad. I'll just cut the bits of mould off it. And as long as I toast it, it'll be fine. Will it? You know, it always reminds me spiritually, do we just, when things contaminate our faith, do we just think, well, we'll just break it off? Little do you know that the moulds that grow in bread, that the tendrils of them spread right through the bread. You might not see them. And you might not taste them. But they might end up upsetting you physically. And just in the same way, we might break off the bits and throw them away. And we say, well, we've dealt with that. But really, at the end of the day, it needs some sort of cathartic remedy for God. God, it has to be confessed to God. God, I had this bit and I need rid of it. So be careful. Be careful what you read, be careful what you watch, be careful who you're listening to. If it's not tying up with scripture, then be careful. Be really careful. So at verse 5, then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and, and there they confessed we have sinned against the Lord. 
Now Samuel was serving as a leader of Israel at Mizpah. I don't know whether you remember Mizpah from Genesis, but that was the place where Jacob and Laban, his uncle, if you remember, Laban was the, was the father of Rachel and Leah. And uh, Jacob had gone to take Rachel as his wife, but Laban kind of deceived him and he ended up with Leah, who was the ugly one. And uh, he had to work another seven years for Laban to get the nice looking one. And uh, he got to the point where Laban was doing the dirty on him all the time. And so this place, Mizpah, is remembered as a place of separation. It was a place where Laban and Jacob went their own ways. That Laban went his deceitful and bad way and Jacob returned to the land of Canaan that was promised by the Lord and, and, uh, and honoured God in that situation. If Jacob had stayed with Laban, then his whole spiritual outlook, the whole spiritual outlook of Judaism would have suffered from it because Laban was basically an idol worshipper. Indeed it says that when Rachel and Leah left Laban's house to go with Jacob, they took the household gods with them. And many reckon that was one of the only reasons that Laban chased after them at that point. And you can read it all in Genesis for yourself. It's a good story. It was the only reason that Laban chased after them. He wasn't really particularly interested in Rachel or Leah, but he was interested in getting his own household gods, his own idols back so that he could worship them. So be careful. If you find yourself in a situation with Laban or a Laban in your life, then be separate. God tells us that. Come out and be separate. Don't, don't allow yourself to be dragged into uh, idol worship. Don't allow yourself to be dragged into the place where you're eating mouldy bread or you're having to eat the chicken and spit out the bones. Be, be the people who can lead the Labans into repentance. They drew water and poured it out. This, that sort of statement shows a desire to repent and to empty themselves of sin. I'll read you a couple of examples, but there's quite a few examples in Scripture that, you know, water being used as a sort of libation to, to indicate a, 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 a remorse in people's lives. In Lamentations 2 and 19, it says, Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. And, uh, you know, if you want to know how Jeremiah felt about it after Israel were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, read Lamentations because that was his outpouring of his grief over them. And in Psalm 22, that great messianic psalm, you know, literally Jesus says from the cross, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax and it has melted within me. So we see this pouring out idea. People used it as a sort of an indication that they were repenting of sin. But they experienced in some measure the conviction of sin. But the conviction of sin means nothing. It's our response which is an indication of the heart change. Yes, we can recognise in our lives that there is sin and we need to do something about it. But the reflection, the fruit that we produce should be a reflection of what's happened in our heart. And if things are not changing in here, then they won't change out here. 
It doesn't start from the outside and work its way in. It starts from the inside and work its way out. So we need to be careful of that. And in verse 7, when the Philistines heard that the Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Philistines were ready to come and attack. They'd heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah and they were having a prayer meeting, basically. And Samuel was there. The Philistines thought this would be a good idea. Good time to attack. Good time to finish them off. But the Philistines should have been afraid of a repentant Israel seeking God. With God on their side, they were invincible. The problem was, up to this point in time, they never had God on their side. And I say that to you this morning. You've not only got God on your side, you've got God inside. You are invincible. Don't give Satan the hooks on which to hang his rubbish. Let's be a repentant people. Let's keep ourselves short accounts with God. And I don't mean that in a sense that everything we do, we have to think, oh well, should this be right or wrong? But there are times, I'm quite sure, if we're truly born again in the Spirit, when we start to do something and there's the check in our spirit and we say, oh, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I shouldn't be reading this. Maybe I shouldn't be listening to this. God forgive me for it. The Philistines thought that they could just march up and finish off Israel completely. Maybe we give too much spirituality to the Philistines. Probably, or possibly, this situation was more like the Yom Kippur situation in 1973. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when all the Arab nations around Israel decided they're all at prayer. Let's attack them and we'll finish them off. But God had other ideas. But this, to me, is the same situation. Israel was at prayer. They were a repentant people. They'd come before the Lord. The whole of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. Just think of the assembly. Thousands upon thousands. Hundreds of thousands of them. The Philistines thought they could come and do away with them. But what they had done was they'd left God out of the circumstances. They thought... A repentant people who are sitting up there and weeping for their sin, they're weak. They were far from it. They were stronger now than they'd ever been. Although, outwardly, they didn't look it. But inwardly, God was strengthening them. Satan rages at those who pray. Whenever you start a good prayer life, a positive prayer life that is attendant to the things of God, be prepared for the battle because the enemy is going to come looking for you. You are in the powerhouse. When you are in prayer, you are in the powerhouse. You are in that place of fellowship with God that, that the world cannot go. That's why I believe that at the end of the day, you know, the, the prayer meeting at the church is the worst attended meeting in the church. Because Satan goes in and he dissuades people from going to prayer meetings. He dissuades them from prayer, let alone going to prayer meetings. How many times have I been ready to come to the prayer meeting and something has happened and I've had to reorganise things, but 
desperately try to get to the prayer meeting. Satan wants to whisper in your ear, don't you bother going to the prayer meeting because you know, you can't pray right. You don't know how to do it. I don't care whether you know how to do it or not. God knows your heart and that's what he's looking at. He's not looking at all this glib talk and this fancy words. He's looking at your heart. And when you get together in prayer, and I'm not just talking about a prayer meeting here in the church, I'm talking about praying with your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you get together, there's something different. There's a different dynamic. Just the same as there was for Israel here. Yes, many of them, in their own separate ways, as they spoke to Samuel, as they did his rounds, would have thought, you know, I really need to get myself right with God. But Samuel called them all together. He didn't go round them one at a time and say, let's get repentant here. Let's come together. Let's see what we can do here. So the Philistines thought this was a weakness in Israel's part. And I'm going to tell you that prayer is never a weakness. Repentance is never a weakness. God will strengthen you to the utmost degree. They were wrong. You know, I often think about it from this point of view, and I want you to think about it. Oh, that every spiritual attack that came against me was when I was at prayer. What a place to be when the enemy comes for you. What What better place could you be than in a prayerful place? They were afraid because of the Philistines. When they had the ark, they thought they had God, and they were very confident of it. They had their lucky charm. They'd taken the ark for Shiloh, they'd taken it down to the, the camp, and the cheer went up, all oh, the ark's here, the Philistines are finished, and they weren't, because God was not in it. But here, Israel is feeling weak and abandoned, and yet they're about to experience the greatest victory they ever had over the Philistines. Don't stand in your feelings, guys. The enemy can influence your feelings. They can create circumstances that affect your feelings. But as we looked at last week, God is the one who overrules in the circumstances. He can make the cows walk in the right direction. He can make the cart that's brand new be an altar of offering unto him. So don't stand in your feelings, walk in your faith. What is it you believe? Remember that you are redeemed by a living saviour. That's all you need to remember. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You have no place around me. The smallest faith in the living God is greater than the greatest faith in a lie. And that was where the Israelites, opposite to opposite, they had believed the lie that in some measure God would be with them because they had the ark. And now, even although the ark was present with them, it was the living God who was there with them. And they said to Samuel at verse 8, Do not stop crying out to the Lord for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord in Israel's behalf and the Lord answered him. You know, many people, I want you to get the idea as to how terrified these people were at this point in time as the enemy came against them. Many times in this world you'll hear people talking about the behaviour of some people when they say they're just Philistines. 
I mean, it, it echoes what the Bible teaches us. You know, the people who are just totally aggressive and, and bloodthirsty and arrogant, and people say, they're just Philistines. And that's who these people were. They thought, we'll come up against Israel and this time we'll really finish them off. And what does Samuel do? Oh, he just performs what is just the most amazing thing. He takes a young innocent lamb and he cuts his throat. The perfect picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus in the Greek was called the slit-throated because that's what they did to the lambs. They slit their throats and they offered their blood and then the, the, the body was sacrificed. The perfect picture. What a what better picture could Samuel offer the people of Israel than the lamb who was slain? And while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Something that we probably looked at in previous studies, but Baal, although they were a fertility god and a god of the harvest, they were also a god of the storm, that people would sacrifice and offer things to the god to appease them so that the storms wouldn't come and destroy their crops. And here was God overruling, as he did with Pharaoh in Egypt. Because if you look at all the plagues in Egypt, they're not plagues in the sense of physical plagues, although they had a physical outcome. They were... They were plagues against the gods of Israel. Every one of them, flies, lice, the sun who was feral, etc. I mean, just look at it for yourself. And God overrules here as well. So Baal was the god of the storm. And it would appear that a great storm had come. Swept in off the Mediterranean probably. Thunder, lightning, heavy rain. That's what we can read into this. It might be speculation, but there was thunder, lightning and heavy rain. It was a great storm that came. Now I want you to think about what we talked about earlier, about the, the, the military prowess of the Philistines. They had great big iron chariots. They had iron armour and helmets. Not exactly the right thing to go out in a thunderstorm in. You might get hit with lightning. Plus the fact that it would appear here that because of their heavy chariots, they sank in the mud and they were helpless. The, the, the defence of a chariot is its speed and its ability to manoeuvre. If you can't do that, you're like a battleship sat in the water without a propeller. You just go nowhere and you're an easy target. And so this is what happened. And the Philistines were thrown into confusion. Nothing worked. Their whole military machine was brought to nothing. Not by the Israelites and their great prowess at being soldiers, but by the storm that God had sent amongst them. Israel, the men of Israel rushed out and slaughtered them. Total confusion and heavy defeat. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. And I say this many times in my own life. If the Lord does no more for me, he's done enough. But thus far, 
Ebenezer, the Lord has helped me. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory at verse 13. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel, that's Gaza, were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Finally, after 20 years, the Philistines were subdued. And Samuel made a peace with the Amorites. And it all took, all it took was the power of repentance. Why don't we make a pact today? Lord, show me. What needs to be repented of? And how can that repentance be evident in my life? The change of heart should bring about a change in circumstances. God is the author of the circumstances. God, help me to be a person that's repentant before you. Not weak and, and put down, but strong in the name of the Lord. And Samuel continued as a leader all the days of his life. From year to year he went in the circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all these places. But he always went back to Ramah where his home was. And there he also held court for Israel. And he built an altar to the Lord. Sorry. So the faithful Samuel watched over Israel all the days of his life. The faithful Jesus watches over you all the days of your life. Lord, make us faithful. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for your word. We pray, Lord, that if there is anything in our lives that, Lord, is, that keeps us back for that full fellowship for you, Lord, that makes areas in our life a bit cold towards you, Father, help us to, help us to bring it forward, Lord, that you might heal our backslide, Lord, that you might restore us to that place where we should be, that we might be the strength of the Lord that's within us, Lord, might be demonstrated to the world around us, Father. So, Lord, help us to go from here with a new understanding of the deeper things of you, Lord. And bless us as we go, Father. And I just pray for our fellowship here in Kirluk that you would grow as Lord, as a people, not just individually, but as a fellowship, Lord, that we might be a people who look after one another and watch over each other as you watch over us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.